Oh, hello, this is Luna Lake. Um, just going to record our radio show, Badger Crazy Cats, on Tree Frog Radio. And it's going to start in three minutes, and we're already on the air playing some other stuff, music, and I'm just going to record from the speaker. So, and, and then after about an hour, I'm going to call somebody and interview them for the show, and then I'm going to put on the rest of the show on the podcast. Maybe I could call somebody on me. You know how we think, organize the hood under our chain banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And them hidden cameras in the street light watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I'll take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion. For help, we do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common need. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. Yeah, black male, live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough. No more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rabbit get shot in they back and fire back. We tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live. In it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's see look how many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Black male, live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women
jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. Experts say suicide is a growing concern during the pandemic. I ran as fast as I could, and I threw myself over the rail. To me, I sensed evil beings poised with daggers. Fell 220 feet, 25 stories at 75 miles an hour in four seconds. I did not make my illness public until relatively late in life. And that's because the stigma against mental illness is so powerful that I didn't feel safe with people knowing. Thinking of suicide? Even in this state, what he accurately described as acutely and floridly psychotic, I refuse to take more medication. The mission is not yet complete. Because that's gonna help. Well, I think I'm gonna stick around and see how angry people can get at me. I was tormented by the voices that I attempted to drill a hole in my head in order to get them out. Speaking of neurodiversity, anyone here got a mental illness? Oh, stigma's still alive and well. Good to know. Okay, fair enough. We don't have to live our lives forever defined by the damaging things that have happened to us. We are unique. We are irreplaceable. What lies within us can never be truly colonized, contorted, or taken away. The light never goes out. Let's get. Oi, hello? hello? Am I on? Yeah, you're on. I'm on. <laughs> okay, I'm here. I'm Luna C. I'm here with uh, DJ Aftermath at, at our usual time slot at 2:30 ish on Saturday. Uh, Batch of Crazy um, Cats show on mental health. Um, what else did I want to say? Oh yeah. Um, I wanted to say that I'm sorry that we weren't here last Saturday, but we had unforeseeable circumstances and had to chicken out. And uh, we're not going to be here next Saturday either, so our next show is going to be on the 1st of January, right? In 2022. Oh yeah, maybe a January show, that's really cool. Yeah, New Year's show. New Year's show, yeah. So just, uh, I'm just going to quickly uh, give a rundown of what we want to talk about today. The big subject today is uh, picked by DJ Aftermath, R.D. Lang. I didn't know anything about R.D. Lang before she brought uh, him to my attention. He's a superhero, according to me now. I'm a total fan. I've been listening to nothing but R.D. Lang every night at, on YouTube channels. And um, he was a anti-psychiatrist. In the what? When did he die? Nineteen ninety-six or something. It was uh, he was um, active during the hippie era. Everybody loved him. He was uh, so good. He didn't believe in medication. He thought people just need to be left alone in a safe space and uh, recover themselves from mental episodes. Uh, we truly both of us believe that too, and uh, we are hoping that we will get back to something like that in our society where. The pill pushers are alive and well, and Big Pharma is raking in the big bucks when everybody gets very sick, uh, life-threateningly sick from side effects. 
Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about COVID and mental health and a little bit more about school shooting and um, whatever comes to our silly little minds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was interesting with R.D. Lang. He didn't, he, people called him anti-psychiatry, but uh, he was a psychiatrist and um, he, he didn't take on that label himself it was just something that people would put on him and um because psychiatry was really uh, i think important to him but it was his approach that was the way that psychiatry was being approached that he was uh, oh wow feedback yeah. i hope you're not getting that feedback online it's horrible <laughs> in here and uh yeah it's just what people labeled him as and uh yeah so well, um, they labeled him as that because he was anti the psychiatry that we are practice that is being practiced to the, even to this day, unfortunately. And he had reasons uh, for that. He he was against that because he didn't think it was helping people. Exactly. And he, and he was a philanthropist. He wanted to help people, and he was interested in the neurodiverse because he thought they were more interesting than the so-called normal people. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and he was, he was born in 1927 and uh, became very popular in the 60s, and um, he's from Glasgow, Scotland. Um, two important books that he wrote was, one was The Politics of Experience and The Divided South, amongst, amongst other, other writings. Um, but very interesting, and he's really based in existentialism, a lot of philosophy, and and uh, Marxism and, and um, critique on capitalism and alienation culture, creating our disease, so to speak. I'm going to take a, I have a couple excerpts from, uh, excerpts uh, from uh, Madness Radio again, Will Hall. Um, he's, he, he, ah, the sound is horrible. Oh, I don't know. It Maybe it's my radiator. headphones. Maybe it's my headphones. I don't know. Let's take the headphones off and see what happens. And um, he... Uh, yeah, he's interviewing, oh my god, the name has just slipped me, but I'll get back to his name that he's interviewing. And, uh, yeah, a couple segments we're going to play from that, and then... Oh, was it, wasn't it this, uh, and, was it Andrew something? Yeah, Guy Thompson, maybe? Yeah, Guy Thompson. Yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. okay. In California, right? Yeah, in California. Um, big fan of like... I think Mad Radio, Madness Radio is in California, isn't it? Um, Portland, Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Close. Close, <laughs> close, close. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and then we'll play some um, um, segments with Artie Lang speaking about um, some of the experiences that he's had with patients and some of his thoughts on, on uh, psychiatry as well. So let's start off with Will Hall and oh, Magna, <laughs> Madness Radio. Here we go. Oh, turn the tape Uh-oh. Nothing's happening. Why? Let's give people a flavor of why we think this is so interesting, why we want to <laughs> encourage the listeners to get interested <laughs> in Hardy Lang and read some of his, like, his work. Oh. Um, just some quotes yeah, that I, I have. Bad. One of the like most basic things about Lang is that he was really a champion of, of rendering what's called schizophrenia or what's called psychosis as intelligible in context. And so one of his quotes is, the experience and behavior that gets labeled schizophrenia is a special strategy that a person invents in order to live in an unlivable situation. Now, there's so much in that that critiques the prevailing medical view of what 
schizophrenia and psychosis are. And he's drawing on the work of Irving Goffman. He's drawing on the work of Gregory Bateson, but he's able to put it in such a clear and powerful way and then convey it to readers. And was this part of what captured your interest and attention when you started reading The Divided Self? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, you know, when I started reading psychology, um, what passes for clinical psychology, my, my mind was just numbed. Uh, the terminology, even in the psychoanalytic literature, you just have to wade through this copious stuff, you know, that's so abstract or mind-numbing, you can hardly understand what they're talking about. Lang just cut right through that with comments like this uh, that you just quoted. You know, he also takes from uh, Freud, uh, but much more eloquently, Freud was the first person to say that what we call uh, defense mechanisms and uh, psychopathological symptoms, whether they're neurotic or psychotic, you know, which is a great divide in the world of psychoanalysis, that the reason we become neurotic in the first place is to try to heal ourselves. You know, we, we've reached our limit. We can't cope anymore with whatever it is that the world is throwing at us. And, and for the most part, you know, we manage to navigate and handle what the world throws to us without getting completely overwhelmed by it. But a lot of people, as we don't know how many, maybe most of us, uh, find this incredibly challenging. We lose our balance. So we take a fall. Uh, why is that? You know, and, and we've kind of pathologized it. We've made it into a psychiatric medical symptom of, of some kind of a disease entity. Lang just cuts right through that idea by calling it a strategy that we use our minds to try to... You know, protect ourselves from something that's scaring the daylights out of us. And that's what gets labeled schizophrenia, psychosis, neurosis, you name it. That, and that's Lang's gift. He can put it in that way. And that experience that someone is confronting and trying to deal with and that overwhelms and is actually called normal society. It's called normal, exactly. the normal family. So he says that we are all in a post-hypnotic trance induced in early infancy from the moment of birth when the stone age baby confronts the 20th century mother the baby is subjected to these forces of violence called love as the mother and father have been and their parents and their parents before them these force these forces are mainly concerned with destroying most of the child's potentialities this enterprise is on the whole successful that's one of my favorite quotes uh, you just read from the politics of experience. Of course, Lang was very uh, influenced by Marxist uh, theory, as all intellectuals were uh, in that era. And uh, that idea that society is destroying us and making us more alienated, and we don't even know it's happening, uh, is really a critique of capitalism and just how uh, greedy and selfish uh, capitalism can be when it's run amok, as of course, as we see right now in 2017, it's run more amok than probably ever, ever before. This was kind of part of the social critique. Lang uh, sometimes got accused of blaming parents, especially mothers, for people becoming diagnosed uh, some kind of psychotic condition. 
Uh, certainly many psychoanalysts took that position, but Lang attributed it to society, that we're all implicated in this. It's, the, it's our value system. Why, why is it we don't reach out and help people that are unable to work and are, are just too out of it to, to deal with what we take for granted every day? And uh, some societies are more generous about this than others, as you well know, uh, especially when you get out of the U.S. But this is the predicament we have here, and it was a similar predicament that Lang was struggling with in the United Kingdom, is that there just wasn't a lot of attention and care about this, or even recognition that the way we're going about living our daily lives is driving a lot of people crazy. Yeah, he says he says really clearly, um, there's another quote, from the politics of experience, he says, nor is it a matter of laying the blame at anyone's door. The untenable position, the can't win double bind, the situation of checkmate is by definition not obvious to the protagonists. Very seldom is it a question of contrived, deliberate, cynical lies or a ruthless intention to drive someone crazy. Although, he says, this occurs more commonly than is usually supposed. I think that's absolutely the crux of the problem. And, and I think it's um, doubly ironic that we have set in place this entity that we call the mental health uh, system or delivery system, uh, where we've made um, the mind part of the medical praxis, and that we... Uh, um, you know, that we come at this um, in such a way that uh, seems almost cruel to the outside observer. You know, you, you see the way that in mental hospitals, for example, uh, people are treated. Sometimes uh, they're treated very compassionately. You know, they, they luck out and there's a really wonderful person there that greets them and takes care of them. But it's often as not, it can be a brutal experience and very impersonal, and, uh, and you're not treated as a person at all. Um, so this is, the, uh, this is the big problem, I think, that, of course, people like Marcuse, um, Harry Stack Sullivan, founder of the Interpersonal School of Psychoanalysis, these are all uh, you know, leftist, very educated in radical politics, uh, they were very attuned to social issues and how social values uh, play such a huge role in the kind of symptoms that families go to therapists for. Uh, that, that was a big part of psychoanalysis in its infancy. Over the years, decades especially, I think, as it got Americanized, it became very conservative and it became a tool of psychiatry. Uh, which was unusual. It never became a tool of psychiatry in the UK or many of the other countries. Uh, so really, it became this ultra-conservative delivery system um, intended to be lucrative. Uh, so these are, these are the trends that seem to take a hold and evolve, and the more edgy, leftist, socially aware aspects uh, began to die out. And now you look at psychoanalysis today and it's virtually disappeared completely. And Lang, Lang says that this question of adaptation is really central. Uh, one of his quotes is, only by the most outrageous violation of ourselves have we achieved our capacity to live in relative adjustment to a civilization apparently driven to its own destruction. 
So this, I think, is the, is the main critique that he starts with and that leads him, in a sense, to be on the side of madness. He's often accused of, of, being, of romanticizing madness or celebrating the madman as a revolutionary, which I, I don't think that he does. But he is saying that the, the point is not to adjust people to a society that has normalized violence, so much harm, uh, but instead to, to understand where people's response come from, comes from and then help them to move through it in a way that's actually going to be liberating for them and then potentially liberating for the society. Well, yeah, that's, that's the number of the problem. And I, I think this is why we're uh, stuck in this kind of dilemma uh, that continues to this day. Uh, you know, I remember uh, in the 70s when I went to work with Lang, uh, the use of ECT, you know, electric shocks, uh, were considered to be barbaric. And there was a huge outcry uh, against uh, against its usage. Uh, today, ECT is used more often, more prevalently than ever in history. There's no social outcry about this at all. And um, we continue to pathologize people who think and behave in ways that are a little different, uh, and we associate being crazed, being depressed, uh, being out of it, being beside yourself, being scared and isolated and maybe a little paranoid with being a sick person that needs to be treated. So if there's a treatment, and of course the treatment today is for the most part medication, which is a misnomer, of course, uh, just sedates you. Um, then, then that's that's all that we do, and 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 so does that cure anything? I mean, that's what treatments are supposed to do. Well, for the most part, no, it's not going to cure anything because it isn't a pathological condition. Our minds are very fragile instruments that are constantly gauging what's going on around us. Some of us just happen to be more anxious and frightened than other people. We take more extremes to protect ourselves, and sometimes we behave in ways that seem a little eccentric or nonsensical. Why label that a medical condition that needs to be treated and cured? Why not find a way to understand what's going on with that person and welcome them into the social network instead of isolating them and abandoning them to some kind of facility?
The caterpillar hood won't cover the head of you. Know you should be home in bed. It's no good holding a sequin Let's take a little bit deeper look in this site. Okay, you're on. Hello? <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's uh, something, uh, you know, to really talk about what, what uh, Artie Lang proposed was a healing methodology for, uh, for those of us that get overwhelmed, let's say, by reality, if that's what you want to say. And... Um, the fact that he was dead against ECT, I am dead against ECT. And I uh, had a few people in, in a facility where I was treated once against my will and committed against my will uh, under the Mental Health Act here in Canada. Pretty brutal. Um, and they had ECT treatment and they were so confused that they could, they were completely disoriented. They were left uh, to go to their homes for a few hours and they couldn't find their way back. They uh, basically, I don't know, it seems to destroy brain structures, uh, memory, and uh, just has horrific uh, effects that uh, are like a lobotomy. What do you think, DJ, aftermath? Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that they're still administrating it, you know, in the year two, tw you know, 2021. It's a horrific ex ex procedure. Um, and... I don't think it has the highest success rate. That, and same with, you know, a lot of the pharmaceutical drugs they administer as, as they like to toot their horn about. Um, yeah, ECT affects uh, short-term and long-term memory. Um, it could, you know, last a lifetime or just a short, you know, short uh, part, part, maybe a couple of years, maybe even shorter than that. But it's like, it's so unpredictable. And it's barbaric. It's a, absolutely barbaric. I, I've seen images of, uh, um, you know, people undergoing ECT, and it's just unbelievable. It's just, you know, it seems like the worst torture. Even though they put you sedate and put you under, you're still your body is being traumatized, and that body remembers that. Um, one, uh, there's a lot of different stories about ECT, but um, one of the things that I like to say, and 
uh, knowing someone uh, very close to me that um, was uh, experiencing long-term depression, clinical depression, uh, for a number of years and uh, was, uh, you know, treatment resistance in terms of pharmaceuticals and, uh, and any kind of uh, therapy. And that they, it being in a state of uh, deep depression, uh, you make decisions that, you know, aren't always uh, the best to make at the time. It's under desperate, con uh, desperate conditions. You do make certain decisions that are not necessarily good for you. And this person um, was approached by their psychiatrist and their um, working clinician. And they were in the hospital. They'd been in the hospital for a number of months and um, just in despairing condition. And they were offered ECT, and initially they said no, and, and um, you know, there was a discussion all around it with, with the, the support staff and the medical team, and, and um, they, they thought about it some more and, and decided that, okay, they said they'll try it. And um, at the bedside, there was the psychiatrist and, and the clinician, and they said, well, you have to sign these forms to give us permission. And the person signed the forms, and they uh, shipped them off to um, a hospital in Victoria for the the um, treatment. And I guess the night before the treatment, the doctor comes in and you know just goes over everything and the procedure and what's not. Well, this person, uh, they you know had some time to think about it because a number of days had passed before. Well, a few days um, had passed before signing the form and and. Uh, um, and the procedure, and they told the doctor that they had changed their mind, that they didn't want to go through with it, that they were scared. And the doctor said, um, that's, it's too bad. That basically, you sign the form and the procedure will be administered, um, you know, uh, uh, whether, whether you agree to it at this point or not, because you were on a, um, they had uh, certified them. And <clears throat> once you're certified, <clears throat> You don't have a choice in what happens to you in terms of treatment. Um, so this person basically had to go through the treatment against their will, and um, and the 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 hard the really difficult point it, part of it is the person didn't have an advocate, um, didn't know that it was possible to have an advocate, um, and because they they didn't have a lot of people in their lives, um, they were new to an to an, a certain area so they didn't have people to, to support them and then making a decision or to talk to anybody about the decision and making a, a decision when you're under a severe state of depression um, is is very difficult and wanting to back out of a situation when you you know this is the same thing it's like you have it's a very you know uh, you need support and so advocacy is something maybe to keep in mind and hopefully have you know, uh, uh, something, some place, some support in place, or um, someone to help uh, make the decisions with you, um, instead of the the medical staff that has you know one one uh, track mind when it comes to treatment. Yeah. So ECT um, and like. Uh, well, I think we might have to tell our listeners what that means. It's basically electroshock therapy. Yeah, yeah, electroshock therapy where they. They hook up these electrodes to your temples, 
and they administer high voltage throughout your body. Um, they have an anesthesiologist there that uh, you know sedates you, puts you under. Um, you have to put something into the mouth to make sure because you clench your whole body just clenches and convulses. It's the most horrifying thing to ever ever see. Yeah, it's basically barbaric, just like what the um, radio interviewer said on Mad Madness Radio. And it was obviously, um, you know, not very popular anymore. Oh, yes, it, it still is, yeah. At the time of Artie Lang, and then all of a sudden it gains its popularity again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who knows why? I think it's just really because uh, people run out of options and they grasp at straws. Uh, the practitioners and the, the therapists do, and they um, they have they have nothing. And uh, you know, instead of yeah, looking at what Artie Lang suggested, like you know, maybe let the people be and just uh, st uh, stay on their level and let them let them be human, not treat them like subhuman subjects. Yeah, and realize like you know the, the full story. Not only is there. Um, you know, different aspects that contribute to um, different extreme states and, you know, found, uh, history of trauma or, you know, the trauma that's, um, that's, that we're, we're living part of within society and the world around us that, you know, help, also contributes to, like, these extreme states and depression. Something funnier uh, on that, uh, along those same lines, um, I once read an anecdote about Tesla, you know, the guy that invented electricity. He would, uh, he was living in New York at the time, and he would uh, go to parties in New York, and after the party, he would invite his friends home with him, and he would give them all mild electroshocks because <laughs> he thought it was fun, and it was stimulating, and he thought it was really healthy. He had this, <laughs> this hearty expectation and uh, of his um, electricity that it would cure people, and... Uh, uh, of course, these were rather mild compared to uh, the treatment that uh, people have to undergo these days, unfortunately. Even though we are in 2021, we still um, you know, have this idea that we have to make Frankensteins out of the um, the people that are suffering from mental disturbances. Absolutely. Um, okay, do you want to... Well, we could play the, the second part of this uh, interview uh, with Thompson by Will Hall and uh, and go from there. Would you up to that? Or? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's okay. uh, hear what else he has to say. Okay. Nothing, I guess. <laughs> hmm. I don't know why it's not playing. Give me a second here. Let's take a little bit deeper look in this idea of the uh, normalization of violence. And Lang is very critical of what happens in families. He says that the family's role is to repress eros, that really the, the innate capacities of the child are being destroyed by the family. And it's not about blaming the mother or blaming the father. It's a social conditioning. One of his quotes is, children do not give up their innate imagination, curiosity, dreaminess easily. You have to love them to get them to do that. He was a big critic of what we call love, not actually being loving and caring. Help us understand a little bit more about Lang's 
view of the family and, and misunderstanding of what love is and what families actually do to us? Well, I, I think for this, uh, language certainly takes a lot from Sartre, uh, who was a brilliant um, commentator and observer of uh, everyday society. You know, Lang's uh, collaboration with uh, Aaron Esterson uh, produced a very interesting book called Sanity, Madness, and the Family, which was uh, simply uh, interviews that the two of them had conducted with families where a daughter had been diagnosed as schizophrenic and was put in a mental institution. And uh, for a number of years, they, they conducted extensive interviews with uh, the families together, the parents separated, the uh, designated patient separated, etc. And these are fascinating because what you get is an inside scoop on what these families were like. And uh, if you take away anything, you take away the idea that really all of these families were doing their very best to try to help this daughter and completely out of their depth in comprehending any part of it. And their own fears and defenses, of course, played a role in how they had to isolate their children. Uh, they, they were not mean, despicable people. They, they were decent, ordinary parents trying to do their best. This was a chilling discovery uh, that Lang and Esterson made from these uh, interviews to realize that you really can't lay the blame specifically at anyone. You know, the closer you look at families, the more you realize that, well, all families are a little crazy, you know, even even the ones that don't have so-called schizophrenic members in them. They did studies of, of so-called sane families and well and found that the dynamics were identical. So, you know, we don't really know what uh, why it is, you know, that some of us uh, go to sea, as it were, and some of us somehow adapt and cope, you know, to this situation. Now there's an incredible permissiveness, and maybe there isn't the kind of authoritarianism that Lang was identifying. So would you say that his critique still holds true today, even with the cultural changes around what's actually happening in families today? Yeah, I, don't, I can't say that I see any difference in it at all. Uh, whether parents are authoritarian on the one extreme or permissive, you still see uh, the same family dynamics. You still see people losing their minds. Uh, now, some people would argue, oh, well, that must say that it's all genetic. You know, if it doesn't make any difference, what happens in the culture? It just must be a biological disease entity that we haven't been able to isolate, as you well, no, there's no evidence whatsoever that there is any kind of genetic component to any kind of mental uh, attitude or state of mind. But it is a mystery as to why some people cope better than other people. An even bigger uh, issue, of course, is once someone has lost their way, what's going to help them? And you're right, you know, John Perry, I Ward, there are a number of places like Soteria, who all followed this model, uh, let's not medicate them. That was the heart and soul of the uh, strategy. Uh, why throw that at them? Let them just try to cope the best they can without medication. Some people could do that in their home environment. Uh, some people needed a special environment 
because the parents were too uh, threatened or afraid or out of their depth. Uh, often you need someone around this person like 24 hours a day to protect them and uh, make sure nothing bad happens to them and just let them get through it. So that was the idea. And I think that that model has had proven to have significant success, all of them, even though they had very different strategies and very different ways of working at it, just not giving medication and giving people a place to stay for as long as they needed. Um, most people that had that opportunity at Lang's work uh, never went back to a mental hospital again. That, to us, was the real litmus of success, not giving them some kind of mental inventory exam and saying, now, how many symptoms do you still have, etc. As long as you can cope and get along with people, which is the biggest problem I think most people have that get marginalized, then you've got a life. And, and, and that's what it's about, is giving you a life, not, not just uh, you know, making you more acceptable to society's views of how you're supposed to be. One of Lang's quotes is, we respect the voyager, the explorer, the climber, the spaceman. Why is it we do not respect the mad who are often exploring the inner space and time of consciousness? I think that one of the key things here is that it's really, and this is maybe one of the messages of existentialism too, that only by encountering these struggles inside of yourself, by having some familiarity with these experiences of alienation and adapting to normalize violence, only by encountering them in ourselves, then can we then go on and help other people by understanding the mutuality and the common struggle. A, a little bit more about Lang as a person, because he was apparently he was incredibly charismatic. He was quite a trickster, coyote character who would just be very provocative. He was very wild. He was also quite uh, in love with alcohol. He got drank, drunk a lot. And um, maybe that was part of his permissiveness or his showing his own shadow or his authenticity or something. But give us a, give us more of a sense of what he was like. How did he operate? What was it that was so special about his the kind of gift or talent he had for reaching people who were in those so-called mad states? And how was it to kind of be around him? What kinds of things did he do and say? Well, that's that's a tough one because I'm not sure anyone has the inside track on who R.D. Lang really was. Uh, some of his family members will have their take on it, and those are not uh, unified. And then those of us who worked very closely with him uh, had a very unique perspective. And, and of course, his patients uh, would have been another group that would uh, have had firsthand intimate experience with him. Um, but just in the kind of day-to-day uh, -day, uh, there was something a little intimidating and scary about Lang. Um, he uh, usually always had a very serious uh, demeanor. Um, especially if you were in a meeting with him, uh, there were no social niceties, uh, with Lang. Uh, if you had a meeting, you came in, you sit down, you got right down to business, uh, very focused, uh, very penetrating. Uh, every word out of his mouth was carefully thought out. And yes, there was the charisma and some kind of energy that he put off that was uh, so compelling, uh, you just naturally were drawn to him 
there was something about what he stood for, what he was trying to do. And, you know, he didn't get paid for uh, any of these uh, things that he put up. Uh, this just came from his heart. Uh, and that, of course, was a wonderful role model because that inspired all of us to do exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, we, we gave it with our hearts as well. That, that was a key to how Lang managed to get people around him to give up years of their life just to support and give to this uh, idea. But I saw he could be different in different contexts. Uh, Michael, give us some give us some examples of psychosis because he had some kind of very very special talent or gift or quality that he was able to really connect and really help people. Well, there were a few times when uh, I would have a consultation with Lang, uh, where he was uh, seeing somebody for the first time. What struck me about how Lang engaged with people of that nature was. He was very, very quiet. So the, the, the person that came for the consultation might be in a kind of a hyper space, might be talking a lot, might be anxious or really upset. He would just listen. And 15 minutes or so into this, everything just kind of changed. And then a real dialogue began to take place. And what really struck me about his approach was just getting to the heart of, you know, what, what is it that you're really, really most worried about here? And what kind of help are you really looking for? And if, if the help kind of help they were looking for uh, might have included moving into one of those houses or going into therapy with somebody, then he would have helped them find the right house or the right therapist. Sometimes they just wanted advice on what to do about somebody that was living at home with them. And they'd go away feeling like, I can handle this. I, I feel I'm. I can. I can do it now. You know, I've had. I've had R. D. Lang tell me that I can do it. And I do believe in it. He had that kind of power and uh, impact on people. But you know, I mean, he had a wonderful, soft, sensitive side. I've never seen anybody more empathic, or what I prefer to call sympathetic, uh, with people. He just tuned in immediately. Felt very comfortable in any one-on-one uh, -on -one situation. He never seemed to uh, need to talk, need to explain, need to give an opinion. That was, I think, lying at his best. Uh, yeah, oh, uh, here we go. Um, okay. I was just... We're back. <laughs> um, I was just thinking of a story um, of an incident where he, Lang, was um, given you know, an opportunity to work with this patient. He was a boy, I think he was under 12 years old, and he hadn't spoken to anybody, not his parents, uh, not his friends, not the therapist or the psychiatrist, and he's basically mute. And um, they brought Lang in, and he basically sat on the floor with the boy and and he put out his hands into the air in front of the boy. Um, and the boy, you know, responded and doing the same thing, meeting, it's just like you were going to play patty cake. And he put his hands up to Lang's hands, and Lang started moving his hands around in these formation, and it was kind of like a dance in the air. And they did that for 45 minutes. And and it was a, you know, beautiful, beautiful interaction. And, and um, where... Uh, the boy, after 
some time spending with Lang, he ended up speaking and started talking and into once again engaging with people. And it's one of, that's one of the interesting things that I gleaned from some of the stuff that I read about Lang was his approach was sort of a metaphysical approach. Uh, um, there's one based on a, enlightenment and and he would give these lectures, these wonderful lectures about um, Langian things and people would get up there after lecture and they ask some questions and they did you know they would say oh, I don't understand like how is this therapeutic there was so much criticism coming from people like the other psychiatrists that were there to listen to him and he would talk about enlightenment and it was interesting because people didn't understand it and they're like well can you walk us through how, how how what is this like how do you create this and he was like this is something that you just it, it comes if you listen to what I'm talking about and you listen to my experience with my patients, you would see, you know, it is about enlightenment. It is about this, this other, this invisible energy and, and, and interaction. Yeah, it, it, he was, um, not only was he uh, quite charismatic, he was also very, um, you know, he, he wasn't, uh, um, he, he didn't play the intellectual. He, was, he always used very simple terms. And he had the Scottish brogue, and uh, it, he was just, you know, he he was a little bit unkempt, and he looked a little bit like Rowan Atkinson, I think. <laughs> Do you think he looks like Rowan Atkinson? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was he was very uh, Scottish, and I think that has something to do with, you know, his habits. Like, of course, most Scottish people drink scotch, and I'm sure he did. And uh, he was, you know, uh, born and raised in Glasgow, and he was very, very Scottish, and uh, very, very sure of himself. And he had this, uh, like this, um, uh, long-winded way of doing things, like uh, spending forty minutes just making hand gestures with a child. You know, most people think themselves and their time too important for that, but he had all the time. Like he would go into a patient. A therapist uh, conference was all the time in the world. He would just be sitting there, like I saw a video. He was sitting there in a big armchair. His uh, his patient was in another armchair, and he just said, "Yeah, I don't really know what I'm doing here and what I'm wanting to talk about. What? Well, how about you?" And she said, "Yeah, I don't really know what I want to talk about either." And they were both laughing, and they had an extremely relaxed discussion. He was able to take the fear away from the uh, patient-therapist um, relationship so well. He, he did it so extremely well. And I think um, I think it's it's exemplary. And, and people to this day really need to learn from this. And they need to stop, you know, their hectic, uh, you know, patient-therapist uh, interviews. Oh, I have like five minutes for you. And, you know, what tablets do you want? Here's my prescription, bye-bye, the way that it goes normally. and. Um, it's um, it's you know it's very counter uh, cyclical and uh, obviously it's got something to do with wanting to make money. Like if you don't really want to make money from your craft, then you don't you have all the time in the world because you're not looking at the clock and oh yeah you know every fifteen minutes I get paid for a new patient by the healthcare system or something like that. Uh, that that was Artie Lang. He um, he had uh, he. He had his, his own ways, and he was able to impress a lot of people. He was very famous in his day. A lot of uh, very famous people were his, his uh, associates. He was associated with uh, many artists. 
he had art therapy. He, he believed in art therapy. He um, he knew John Lennon. I, I think uh, what did we say? John Lennon's that that song, the uh, Beatles, right? That Beatles song, uh, "Day in the Life." It was kind of dedicated to him. Is that right? Oh uh, yeah, Can I say yeah, that? that's right. And he uh, ended, and the BBC uh, kind of banned it for a while because they decided that it had um, too many. Um, uh, how would you say that? Uh, too many associ uh, like associations to the drug use that Artie Lang was uh, proposing. He was experimenting with psychedelics, and he believed uh, that it was helpful and it would help uh, get away from the, uh, the strictly rational thinking that has taken root in Western culture that seems to be, uh, you know, exterminating everything that gets in its way. Like we we talked about magical thinking on in another episode. And uh, Artie Lang, uh, with his idea of love and you know that kind of more emotional approach and intuitive approach, he was uh, probably more on the side of magical thinking and just letting things happen magically in a therapy session, so that you know it's uh, it it becomes more healing a healing process that that is. That, that springs in and out of the situation and out of the actual individuals that are involved in the process rather than some kind of a strictly imposed step one, step two, step three kind of thing that a rationalist might impose. Yeah, it's kind of like when we had the first episode we were talking, uh, there was an interview um, with we played with Arnold uh, Mandel and he's a process therapy uh, therapist um, and that's based on uh, R.D. Lang's work as well. And um, Mandel approached his patients in a very spontaneous, improv way as well. Um, and, and his belief was that he wouldn't go in with his preconceived notions of, you know, how to approach anybody in society. And what was it like to actually be, you know, enter into someone else's world that was experiencing an extreme state? How do you begin to have a dialogue with this person that, that isn't, you know, uh, isn't speaking the same language that you're used to, or isn't behaving the same way that you're used to, might be behaving in a way that really scares you. And there was that example where he walked into a room, this woman had, the, the, again, he was called into a hospital and, and where the psychiatrist and the medical staff there didn't know what to do with this woman. She had been under her bed for days and, and wouldn't come out, wouldn't speak to anybody. And Mandel went in there and and he looked and saw her under the bed. Eventually, um, things started to change with her, and they had a dialogue, and, and things moved forward through that, and, and, and the process of, the, of healing happened. Um, I wanted to play this little clip by, uh, this is this is Artie Lang speaking about uh, We Are Frightened of Our Own Minds. It's a short little clip, but um, it'd be good to hear what he has to say about that. One characteristic of uh, our culture I think is uh, what I would call psychophobia we're psychophobic we're, we're frightened of our own minds of our own psyches there is no book going around that is uh, seems to me more explicit about uh, this in its own way than the DSM-3 Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, 3rd edition, which is 
calls itself a, a, a compendium of criteria of mental disorder that lists any unusual perceptual experience is a criteria of mental disorder. Any unusual perceptual experience, sixth sense, clairvoyance, telepathy, uh, others can feel my feelings. I feel the presence of a dead, or a force of presence of a dead person in the room with uh, me who's not there. You're allowed to do that for three weeks after your mother dies. After that, it is uh, <laughs> criteria of uh, mental disorder. What is, seems to there be proposed is a, is a massive hom a project of homogenizing experience. We're all experience the same thing at the same time. No one's going to be allowed to experience anything differently, different from anyone else. Uh, you're not allowed to see the sky uh, as grey if other people see it as blue. That is a perceptual change that is a criteria of disorder. Uh, all over the world, for uh, all types of places, uh, these um, uh, Criteria for mental disorder, as far as I can see, have been the ordinary expressions of ordinary human heart and soul. So we are in the process of, I think, under the name of cultivating health, we are in the process of culturing it out. But we have the power, the political power, to regard any unusual perceptual experience as uh, combined with one or two other criteria which are not difficult to find, uh, as a uh, token of, uh, for stripping a person of all their civil rights and liberties, virtually, and uh, putting them entirely at the uh, mercy of what we feel is a good thing for us to do for them, uh, for them to behave in a way that we want them to behave, whether they want to or not. I, I think this is an insufferable uh, uh, gap in the, you might say, ordinary human uh, uh, rights operating at the very heart of a self-styled free society. A slave is said to be a man who cannot voice his thoughts. Someone coming within range of us ought to... I would say be very careful what they say to us. Just depends on how we're going to take it, how we're going to regard it. Uh, any unusual perceptual experience, magical thinking, clairvoyance, telepathy, all listed as criteria. Collecting garbage, hoarding food, inadequate uh, uh, grooming, uh, and then what it really amounts to is talking too much or too little or out of turn or moving too much or moving too little, etc., etc., etc. That's what the politics of experience is all about. Uh, the, the, uh, this is a control over the way people, our style of actually perceiving the world. Even though we're not breaking the law in any way in, in terms of the way we actually conduct ourselves, there's not, nothing criminal about our behavior. Our state of mind is regarded as uh, 
undesirable and should be put a stop to. I gave a lecture uh, a few years ago at the Berkholtse Hospital, which was the...
I am by myself. Uh, DJ Aftermath had to step out, so I hope I'm on. Yeah, I think I'm on. Um, I just wanted to mention uh, uh, talking uh, about the DSM-5 and uh, the you know minuscule deviations of behavior that it takes to be forcibly committed to a psych ward. This happened to both me and DJ Aftermath, and we are both very much in favor of the Human Rights Commission examining these things, but the Human Rights Commission, of course, won't. That's not what the Human Rights Commission does. And uh, that's what the Human Rights Commission isn't paid to do, because uh, this mechanism, like Aldi Lang um, uh, very uh, um, correctly pointed out, is used to suppress people that become inconvenient and that have too many thoughts and have too many ideas about a society that they want to live in that is not like the society that we live in. That's what I think anyway. So I'm going to have an uh, experiment. I, if I have an experiment here planned with you, I'm going to try and call somebody and have a telephone conversation on the show, which, um, you know, is always looks so cool on the CBC. So, but um, is it really going to happen for me? So I'm going to call our good friend Grigori, who has been here as a guest uh, and was supposed to be here as a guest, but he wasn't feeling well today. So I'm going to ask him if he had a mental breakdown and if he wants to talk about it or why he's not here today. They end up getting manipulated and one of the things is with some of the, the stars, they would be on volume and uh, and the these people that were there to uh, personal assistance that's it and mm -hmm. they would make sure that they're you know intoxicated with drugs and alcohol and you know take them mm -hmm. for their finances and take over everything and have these lavishest parties and spend their money and next thing you know these people are broke yeah that's exactly what happened in the show and i i think britney spears is a good example too i mean they totally manipulated her and and they had her where they wanted her to be with pharma and uh, the legal situation. Uh, she was basically and uh, and uh, she was she basically won. They actually dissolved the, the conservatorship. I read it the other day in the somewhere online. They they let her they let her off the hook. And um, yeah, she's um, she's. You know, the way she talks, you know, you can tell that she has got slightly aberrant behavior patterns and that people can very easily pin a diagnosis on her. And uh, that's what uh, that's what they love to do. And uh, I think especially they love doing it with women. To me, it's like a modern witch hunt. Because a lot of the psychiatrists are men and they just, uh, you know, they just love to dominate the women that come to their uh, to their consultation rooms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I agree with you there. Um, yeah, and I was just thinking, I'm going back to R.D. Lang again, but I was just thinking about um, um, when the, some of the places that were with Thompson, too, the person that was being interviewed, um, Guy Thompson, he was saying, too, that, you know, the facilities that were being set up were um, the for alternative treatment uh we have like for safe places like he was saying around safe people and sometimes at their home or another place that was uh uh safe for them people to um go through what they were going through and uh yeah no i i'm losing my train of thought oh well it's gone <laughs> <laughs> it's 
difficult to find a safe place because sometimes the family home is dangerous, fraud was dangerous. It's like Artie Lang said, you know, there was manipul there are manipulators there. And uh, a lot of families, once you are diagnosed, they fully accept the diagnosis. They don't believe you when you say that you shouldn't have been diagnosed. And they, they stay on the side of the psychiatrist and they tell you that, uh, that you are bipolar or schizophrenic or whatever the diagnosis is and they totally buy it they they think they have a right to to assert themselves in that way and it's horrific it's not a safe place yeah exactly um yeah i, I noticed i haven't been saying who's been saying the music that we've been playing um i've been horrible at that oh, yeah, give some all our shows but um the ones that i've been selecting have to be uh, are people that are followers of Artie Lang or uh, uh, did I play Russian Red? Like, have I even played that? Like, there's some good ones, and um, so there's some songs that were, you know, written specifically for Artie Lang or followers of him, his and his writings, and and uh, yeah, yeah. And the last one was Glenn Gould. Artie Lang was a big fan. He played the piano as well, and. I'm a big fan of our, our Glenn, Glenn Gould, I don't know, <laughs> I don't think so, <laughs> but just the fact that he loved the piano and he loved to play the piano, that, Lang, that was big for him. Another uh, man that uh, was associated with Artie Lang at times was William Burroughs, who was, uh, you know, who is a pretty batshit crazy cat, if you really want to think about it. <laughs> uh, so cool. I love Burroughs. Yeah, so cool, that guy. <laughs> Also, really straight, straight faced, and like making all these jokes, and people think that he's serious. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, and Burl has a huge commentary on you know society as well, and and uh, saw it as very problematic to be uh, you know, living in a period that, or any period of time, <laughs> it seems for that matter. That might have been the easiest period because we had all those hippies and. You know, draft dodgers we were talking about before, you know, people that did not buy the idea of the government enforcing some kind of a draft uh, and uh, wanted to escape the heavy hand of the government, which, you know, we're all dreaming about. Yeah. Oh, I know. I remember when I was mentioning Russian Red. Um, yeah, it's a, when we were talking about the Beatles, a Day in the Life, you mentioned, yeah, um, was sort of, it was a, you know, a song that was written with R.D. Lang in mind and banned by the BBC. Um, yeah, do you want to hear a version of it? Oh, I love that song. Yeah, let's okay, play it. Okay, let's play it. Let's see. Otherwise, I was going to sing some of it. Oh, yeah, you can sing You can <laughs> sing along. That'd be fantastic. Okay, no, no. okay there we go. We'll I try that. I want to ruin the song for our listeners. <laughs> Me gustaría darle las gracias a Intermonox Fan por organizar todo esto esta noche. Creo que es increíble lo que están haciendo. Y muchísimas gracias a vosotros por venir. Si no, esto no estaría pasando tampoco.
absolutely suicidal, tremendously depressed, and the deepest depth of despair came along to see me for an initial consultation. And uh, I've developed the uh, therapeutic idea that that, uh, it is not necessarily a good idea if you're in prison, in a dungeon, say, uh, uh, and the door happens to be open. Uh, to adopt the policy, I'm not going to walk out of this state of affairs unless I discover how I got into it. Forgotten how I got in here, but I'm not going to walk out until you, you know, I work out all the reasons uh, I got into it. Now that is not, a, a, doesn't necessarily help you to get out of it to find out how you got into it. It might be useful, but it often isn't. So. 
I will say then to someone who's absolutely miserable, when was the last time you remember ever being happy? Or, or is there anything that you can scan in the last 24 hours, the last 48 hours, go back as long as you like, when you last felt okay? So I adopted this policy with this guy instead of going into all his family history and all of what he did, blah, 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 so I got him onto what he enjoyed. You go for a walk and whistle. Whistle. Then we're going to say, this is in honor of... His favorite tune, or something that occurred to him, he'd, he'd forgotten that uh, <laughs> he could actually whistle. You know. So, so we, got, we get into our sort of rap, but this at the end of uh, uh, 50 minutes, yeah, he was uh, uh, we're, <laughs> we're changing jokes, his favorite jokes, <laughs> and my favorite jokes. And, uh, uh, so I suddenly, you know, said, well, it's 50 minutes, it times up. And the guy was like, ah, and as he got to the door, he, he, he suddenly went, <laughs> so, remember that he had come see me because he was suicidal and he was de de depressed. And he started to object that he hadn't had his money's worth. <laughs> he, he hadn't spent a time going the... into his depression. I, I got... I said, you know, you've had 50 minutes with me, if you, if you had, uh, and you're not depressed now. Uh, don't you think you might sort of go away and think about what happened between us, and uh, so such that you forgot about your depression for a bit? And you, uh, you know, if, uh, the best way to keep depressed is think of, is to keep on thinking about your depression. You forget yeah. it. If you can, and if you can't forget it, then all right, we'll have to go into it. <laughs> I'm on. I'm really sorry that I sang, but it was so compelling, and uh, she prompted me into it. I yeah, I loved it. <laughs> it <was> fantastic. <laughs> I literally, every time I read the news, I think about the song and about what kind of jokes I could make about the news. And I just love, I would love to see how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. I've, I've been to the Albert Hall and, and I, I listened to a concert and I fell asleep. I was too tired. <laughs> <laughs> it was after work. <laughs> um... I yeah I wanted to get back uh, real quick to the approach that Ardy Lang suggests strenuously suggests that uh, healing of uh, those mental states that uh, you know we feel as a society are undesirable should be without medication and um I think between uh, me and um like I said between me and uh, DJ Aftermath we probably emptied several pharmacies worth of medication in our lifetimes already that was pushed on us and that made us sicker than we were before that that may have temporarily addressed the problem that we came in for but in the long term created problems that are way worse than the, we ever any problems that we ever had before and uh, we uh, I, you, I mean you don't have to listen to every show but uh, and so I'm going to give you a refresher we were talking about Jordan Peterson falling into that trap and he as a clinical psychologist should have known better but he had no idea that he was going to have that kind of a side effect from a very short-term treatment of benzodiazepines that were supposed to address a temporary life situation that he found himself in that he couldn't handle 
and uh, you know the long-term suffering in the community. This uh, side effect akathisia is has now been shown to be a side effect for at least 30% of the people that take a certain set of medication that has been attributed the side effect. And most of them are uh, uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, that are very, very common since the 70s, benzodiazepines. Antipsychotics. Uh, antipsychotics, like the antipsychotic Seroquel, which is uh, also as a... Um, has uh, kind of uh, helps people sleep for a time, has been given to uh, Vietnam veterans who like in droves committed suicide after being on that medication for a while. That's why they dubbed it Serokill. And um, the, uh, the the mismanagement that the big pharma has, you know, to put has really that we can squarely put at the feet of big pharma and at the co collaborators, the psychiatrists, who are all too ready to prescribe medication and are all too ready to prescribe a whole set of medications. Some people are on 10, uh, I'm in a Facebook group called Living with Akasigia, and people are on, on, on 10 different medications at any given time and constantly switching and constantly tapering and trying to get out of this state where they're basically in constant terror, hypersensitive, hyper. Uh, hyper vigilant, uh, you know, always uh, thinking about suicide because they can't handle the terror anymore the, that they experience. Um, and physical and physical pain and discomfort. That's extraordinarily yeah. um, mind crazy making. Crazy making pain that uh, jabbing pain or crawling pain or. Uh, some kind of skin pain that is completely unexplained. Nobody knows why it's why it's coming. Uh, people say now that uh, certain um, uh, uh, regions of the brain and certain mechanisms in the brain, ganglions or neurons, are destroyed because of uh, this medication because it's too chemically, I don't know, aggressive. It just goes into the into the brain and starts destroying structures there that take a long, long time to grow back for some reason. I mean, you'd think a tiny little uh, add-on to a neuron wouldn't take so long to grow back, but it, uh, for whatever reason, it, it takes years for people to dig themselves out of this big hole that, that has been dug for them, uh, when what they mostly wanted to do was address a temporarily uh, difficult situation that sent them into emotional turmoil. And um, the no-medication approach is becoming more and more and more important. Every day that I study this information, every day thousands and thousands of people are put on this medication for no good reason, with absolute uh, uh, neglect and disregard, like, like a criminal disregard of people who should really know better. And uh, I am... You know, every day that I study this, I am more against medication for uh, for people that are finding themselves in mental difficulties. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's, the link to aggression is quite strong, too. When they first started to see the akathisia associated with aggression um, was showing up in the in um, asylums um, when uh, Ad uh, what is it, um, Haldol, was being introduced yeah. to the population, which is an antipsychotic, a calming agent. It's, it's like halidopro, hali, what is it called again? I can't remember. I don't know, but short, short form, uh, Haldol. Halidopro <laughs> or something. Yeah. yeah. 
that's and, uh, uh, that's what they uh, that's what they gave the people in the gulag to torture them. Yeah, the Soviets. Absolutely, absolutely. They would inject them with uh, uh, with that drug because it created the akathisia. I can't. And it created mm. the akathisia, and it was it was uh, mm. um, a it was uh, known to create uh, inner turmoil and torture beyond belief, and uh, leading to suicidal ideation and also homicidal ideation. Yeah, the number of uh, aggressive events in terms of like fights that broke out in the asylums rose drastically when they introduced uh, Haldol, and um, saw that akathisia was a big response to it. And like you were saying, and plus it was linked to uh, a lot of um, uh, murders and uh, abuse, uh, violent uh, violent actions out in just in the general public outside of the hospitals when people were released and still on, like you said, the SSRIs and the antipsychotics. Um, and and uh, yeah, and the, you know, you're mentioning about um, the ties with the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, pharmaceutical companies have the research is suppressed and, and and it's just recently being uncovered by um, you know inquiring minds of some of the psychiatrists they're wondering what's going on and and discovering that this is happening and and uh, trying to bring this information forward and and these psychiatrists are, are you know they're becoming anti-medication uh, enthusiasts and um, yeah, so this is an sure. interesting, you know, turn of events. Well, it's, uh, you know, I really would never have known that I had akathisia, and I got it from being injected with Abilify for, like, three months, and I got such bad suicidal ideation. I was already suicidal before from all the medication, and this Abilify just made it so much worse. I was basically catatonic, and just uh, thoughts, like, looping around about suicide, suicide, suicide. I was on the suicide forum, online all day like 20 like all my waking hours were spent on the suicide forum trying to figure out how i could commit suicide yeah and i had the same exact same experience on a zombilify as well and that's what was going on with me it was unbelievable like i just found such solace in exploring this, um, different avenues of uh, suicide and um, and the coroner's report on suicides and what was <laughs> the methods that people went about, you know, it's, the research just went on and on. I was obsessed with it. And one of the interesting things, the telling point was, was my suicidality, uh, my, the idea behind it, on how I, how I was thinking about doing it was a relatively, um, you know, it, I, I mean, act of, of suicide is, is very aggressive, but in the, t the types that, uh, that you might undertake um, can be, um, you know, very different in terms of discretion. And, but when I was on Billify within one week, I was having a horrific, you know, experience of suicidality increase like a hundredfold. And the methods that I thought about were just horrendous. And I reflect back on them now and I was like, I would never, ever, ever think of uh, of of those kind of methods of you know basically torture on the body. A little bit, yeah. yeah. I was I I know we do, shouldn't be talking about methods, but the, it was funny because I always wanted to drive into the water and just drown myself in the car, because it's relatively quick. Like I I was going to just you know open the windows and just you know let the water flush in. Take doesn't take very long. <laughs> Yeah, but it's brutal, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Who, who, who wants to do that deliberately, like, yeah. you know? But uh, but it has been done, you know. And there there are other 
easy uh, methods that they were talking about online and uh, they were all ordering stuff on the internet from the dark net and then it wouldn't come and it was just like where's my stuff and <laughs> it was supposed to come from China and it gets held up at the border and <laughs> gets seized at the border <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you get arrested yeah yeah um, uh, but it's it's very predictable like it's it's very it very predictably creates suicidal ideation and none of my psychiatrists who after, even after three suicide attempts breathed a word that this could be a side effect of the medication and i only found out because of jordan peterson talking about it oh I, yeah i couldn't believe it i was just like I, i was like oh my god this is like i thought i was suicidal despite the medication yeah well amplified that's for sure yeah you know and the like again back to big farmer and the money that's to be made on it's just and especially during covid because of the increased sales of you know things like benzos are huge in terms of like temporary relief for um you know uh the systematic responses, uh, mental responses to COVID and, and isolation and, and the stress associated with it. And the doctors, you know, the, the part of their, like, again, the research, the, 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 the side effects, some of the, the research is suppressed. And, and um, but also the doctors are given enormous incentives to push these drugs. And where they get trips to Hawaii, they get a new car, It's phenomenal stock options. the bribery that goes into it. Yeah. Oh, and stock options like the conspiracy uh, um, that was uncovered in New York. I can't remember. It wasn't that long ago, but it was to do with um, you know the the pharmaceutical companies were were encouraging doctors to um, push their particular medication and also given the stock options that go along with it, and we're making millions of dollars. Yeah, that's um, that's the unfortunate side effect of capitalism, just like uh, Artie Lang pointed out. You know, you can't trust these people. They have a conflict of interest. They are uh, totally clued into the system. They are stuck in the system. They have sacrificed for the system. They have sacrificed their souls. They can't think uh, about anything other than money anymore. Yeah, yeah, and also the way it's structured, they're not given the time to think. They're not given time to research. I mean, you're forced into seeing, you have 15 minutes. This is, this is the, you know, it's not the doctor saying, well, I think I'll make sure that I only see my patient for 15 minutes or 10 oh, minutes. You know, it's like, they're set up to like, okay, you have to see a certain amount of patients a day. You have, you know, 30 people, like even clinicians, and you have this amount of time. It's, they don't have time to think. The first thing they can do is like, okay, we have three minutes to diagnose you. Another five minutes to sit down and write up medic uh, a script for you and then send you out the door. Yeah, but why would anybody have a job like that? I mean, that's so uncreative and soul-destroying. I don't think a lot of people realize that that's what's, what's going to happen to them when they go into med school and end up coming out the other side. That's what's going to happen to them when they go to heaven. It's going to be like, what did you do in your life? Oh, well, I was sitting there and I spent 15 minutes with people and gave them medication. Okay, hell. <laughs> Off you go to hell. Oh, you're gonna sing the bat shit jingles. Oh, oh, of course, yeah. Oh, I wanted to talk about singing too because I was uh, singing to the John Lennon song, and I remembered something I read on the internet this week about the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a huge nerve that branches into almost all the parts of the body, starts uh, at the end of the skull. 
no not at the end of the skull it starts more like uh, where, where the vocal cords are and uh, there has been uh, you know Artie Lang was doing that he was humming and he was uh, you know making these noises in that one video did you see that where he was going rah 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 when it was when he was invited for that speaking tour over in <laughs> in the United States and they were all hanging out and taking drugs and he was just like barking at people and I thought about simulate uh, that might have stimulated the vagus 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 what is it called vagus nerve V a g u s I think right yeah and uh, a lot of people have found that humming. Uh, really alleviates their anxiety and and you know maybe even speaking and singing and I think there is there is a lot to be said for that and I think uh, just uh, what um, what are what, what that that Artie Lang uh, clip the, the last one that you played was that guy who suddenly got happy and he was telling jokes I think it was because he was talking to someone he was hearing his own voice, he could uh, feel the vocal cords and it was stimulating his nervous system and he was getting happy. And he was telling jokes, yeah. you know, just uh, temporarily. But I really do think that people need to get out there. They need to, if they, don't, if they are depressed, they need to get on the phone, they talk to somebody, you know, they sing a song, you know, maybe uh, just hum humming if they want to. But I think really talking to other people is where it's at because, you know, you end up laughing. Yeah, I agree. And I think, that, like Lang said too, is just like, okay, so, you know, this is, this is sort of a situation that when you walk out of the office and you, just before you walked out of the office, you were laughing and enjoying yourself and telling jokes and sort of like a situational sort of depression. And then he said, if that, well, if that's not working, then, then yes, we have another situation on our hands. Is like, you know, we'll approach it in a different way in a clinical depression, which, you know, jokes weren't, won't necessarily alleviate it. However, there's other approaches besides medication that, that you know, R.D. Lang um, talks about. And, uh, you know, he's, he's way ahead of his time when he's talking about psychedelics in terms of LSD and for treatment. I mean, today, in, they're utilizing... Uh, um, psychedelics, uh, ma magic mushrooms for the treat M M MDMT um, for the treatment of PTSD, and they've been, you know, very successful um, treating veterans, and um, very successful in in uh, a lot of ways to the fact that now they're setting up clinics in Vancouver where they're, you know, they have the research has been done. They're bringing in patients and they're they're doing PST. Uh, PTSD treatments and with um, using magic mushrooms and, and like I said they're having success yeah I don't know these magic mushrooms they don't seem to work <laughs> <laughs> well um, and DMT is a, another um, think, uh, one that they're working with as well and, and I think mm -hmm. it's like yeah you know it's the same it's the same with anything it's, it'll work for some people it's your bio your bio makeup is a little bit different so your effects with maybe with this magic mushroom might not be the same as with something else, you know, so no, exactly. it varies, yeah. And I think they're using it quite successfully in late-stage cancer patients who are very depressed often. And I've got two on my Facebook group right now that have acacia and late-stage cancer. And they are treated with disdain by the medical profession and they're just kept in their room and pumped full of medication. And they're, you know, when they're almost they they are almost dead basically and nobody gives them any joy nobody gives them something that you know like a 
drug that might give them joy, like LSD, right? They might just really enjoy that experience. And, you know, it's not like, you know, they're going to have a lifetime of dependency or problematic psychotic states uh, because they're almost dead anyway. So why torture them? It's crazy. So, yeah, I think that there's really, uh, there's room for something like that. Anyway, I just wanted to, um, you know, honor our xylophone. (laughs) We have a xylophone. The octave is the international language. Like, I don't know how important the octave is. I think it's really, really, really important. I don't know much about music, but it's just like, you know, it's something it's sacred. cosmic. It's sacred, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it shouldn't absolutely. be called an octave because it's really like, it's seven things. You know, the eighth thing is just a repeat of the first thing. Mm-hmm. So oh. how is it an octave? <laughs> not sure, not sure. <laughs> good point. Octave is very, very good point. Um, uh, oh, uh, I want to play one, one more song and then. Uh, and we have to go because we have to get. Oh yeah, uh, one more song and then let's see. Hold it. Maybe you should. Uh, let's see, one more song and then and then we'll do, yeah then we'll sign off. Okay, here it goes. It's really okay, quick. and we say goodbye. Okay. This time we'll say goodbye.
We are the batshit crazy cats. We are the batshit crazy cats. We are the batshit. We are the batshit. The batshit crazy cats. Goodbye. See you on January first. January first. January first. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, that'll be fun. The next. Uh, that Merry was fun. Yeah, I'll enjoy talking about R.D. Lang. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Bye bye for now. Okay. Cool. You can leave a couple minutes early. So <laughs> They won't, they won't yeah. come off until, <laughs> until we stopped. <laughs> that was good. It's over. Yeah. It was garbage. <laughs> <laughs> that was garbage. That was garbage. <laughs> that was garbage. 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 That was